Um, this morning's teaching comes from Mark 3:20 through 35. So I invite you to read along with me if you have your app or your Bible or on the sheet. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could even eat. They could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to the, sorry. <laughs> and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to the parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, and the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome. Thank you, Lily, for, uh, for reading that text. And, you know, I was just thinking about um, reading those texts. You know, one of the things we say at the end is, um, you know, whoever's reading it says, uh, this is the word of the Lord. And oh, we respond. Um, we respond by saying, thanks be to God, because um, we believe that God still speaks, that he's spoken to us by his son, Jesus, and he's speaking to us uh, through his word. And uh, hopefully even uh, today would be um, a way of God speaking to us through his word that we would be um, seeing truths in scriptures. And that's, you know, often my prayer when I teach is that, you know, my words would be um, from God, not that I am of God, uh, but that God would be speaking through me. And so we believe that the scriptures um, have authority into our life and into our practice. And so that's why we do that. Um, so welcome. Um, it's not 1999. Josh would beg otherwise with the heart to worship. And I asked Josh, um, I just asked him, I said, Josh, were you, were you born um, before or after that song? He said, it's got to be close. And so, um, Josh, find out, okay, wherever you are, find out. Um, well, um, let's pray. Uh, welcome to, if you are online, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we're going to look at this Mark 3 passage, um, verses 20 through 35. Um, and it's actually not on your sheet just because of space, and our screen will come back next week. And so uh, if you want to grab your phone, I'm going to be really walking through the passage today pretty linearly. linearly. Um, I don't know if that's a word. Uh, but Mark chapter 3, and then um, we'll walk through that there. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into this. And so, Father, we pause because um, we do believe that you speak and we want to hear your still small voice. And I pray today that you would soften our hearts, that you would take away from us pride, that you would take away from us cynicism, that you would take away from us fear, but that this would be a time of rest, that this would be a time of healing in our souls, that this would be a time of uh, remembering who you are, and then it would be a time of remembering who we are because of who you are. And so, God, would you be in our midst, um, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so here's Dallas Willard on skepticism and doubt. He says, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. He says, you can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. We've cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. And the world is really hard on us as people. It sort of um, pushes us, hardens us towards skepticism, right? I was thinking about, like, when you walk through Union Square and someone tries to hand you a flyer, you're like, not a chance, you want my money, right? Like, we're hardened towards other people in that way. Or uh, you get, a, you get a, phone, uh, a phone call from a random number, you're like, nope, stealing my identity if I answer that one. Like, not a chance, right? But we don't just do this um, relationally with other people, but we actually become skeptical of ideas, of ideologies. Um, and for many of us in the room, we'd say, you know what, questions actually just come far more naturally to me than just accepting blanketed truths. And part of this is really good. But see, our culture has cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. And so in a world of skepticism and doubt, what I want to submit to you this morning is that belief requires courage. Belief requires courage. It actually, we have to muster up a bit of courage to say, this is what I believe, and I'm settled on it. A couple weeks ago, I was preaching about, um, talking about the difference between um, faith in Jesus, following his ways, and then the spirit of religious moralism. And that spirit of religious moralism drives us um, into a hardness of heart, into a cynicism, and often into a superiority. And in the end, I, I can't remember exactly the question we asked, but the question was something like this. It's like, what does it look like for us to stay in that, the, a place of tenderness? What does it look like for us to have tender hearts where we can believe again? And really what it led me to reflect on over the last couple of weeks, especially as we've been looking at these passages, is um, in my own personal life, I'm like, what does it look like for me to have a simple faith? Not a simplistic faith. I'm not, I'm not advocating for like um, a naive faith where we ignore hard questions. That's not it at all. Um, in fact, I would say that wrestling with doubts and questions is part of the spiritual journey. But what does it look like for me in like a personal sense to have a sort of um, childlike innocence to my faith? Where I ask questions, but um, as I understand them, I place my faith and my trust that God is who he says he is. And he's going to do all the things that he promised to do. And I hope that maybe looking through this passage, that would be your journey as you're, as you're here. You're like, I'm trying to figure it out. Figure it out. Like, it's okay to come in here and not have all the answers. We're, we're working through things. We're processing. But that would be my hope that we could come and explore and to be open. To say, is my, is my heart open to learning something new? To hearing in some ways that I'm wrong or I need to adjust? And that's, I think, what this season is requiring from a lot of us, is sort of a renewal of understanding and faith. And ironically enough, that's exactly what this passage wants to do today. It's actually, um, it's, it's continually poking us and prodding us with a question about the identity of uh, the Bible's main character, Jesus. And in the passage, what we're going to find is that Jesus is often misinterpreted or mistaken. And um, it's a fun passage. It's, it's quite complex. Um, if you want to pull it up on your phone there. Um, it sort of has like the tumult and complexity of a Quentin Tarantino movie. You're like, I have no idea where this is going, what's going on. It's very chaotic. And then it sort of comes together with the brilliance of like a Christopher Nolan. Um, what was his movie that came out in 2020? Um, Tenet. Tenet was amazing. And it just, the whole movie came together and I'm like, I got to watch it again. My mind is blown. And that's what this passage, it looks chaotic and then it comes together so um, perfectly. So on your sheet there, it's like this Bible geek stuff. It says chiastic structure. And so this is actually, the text didn't fit. And so I was like, 
We'll put the structure of the text in, in, in the handout here. And so um, what, what a chiastic structure is, this is totally nerdy, and I'm going to teach you what this is this morning, but this type of structure is actually found all over the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament, and it's sometimes found in the New Testament. It's a way of arranging a story, and if you ever think the Bible is just like thrown together, that's not it at all. The, the biblical writers are brilliant. And so look at the passage layout. A and A parallel each other there. It's, it's Jesus and the crowds. And so that's verses 20, and then on the back end, it's verses uh, 32 to 35. And then B and B parallel each other. Jesus' family, the relationship with his family, we're talking about in verse 21, and then in verse 35. And then right in the middle, C and C, they correspond with each other. That's the accusation and the response of the scribe. And so if you're not into nerdy Bible stuff, um, think of it like a sandwich, all right? And so the outside, like Jesus and the crowd and Jesus and his family, that's like the bread of the sandwich. And then C is like the, the meat of the, it's like the central, the meat, or if you're vegan, like it's the avocados of the sandwich. I don't, I don't know. But when you look at that, it seems kind of silly, but there's actually purpose to it. Because if, if you read the story straight through, you're like, okay, Jesus is interacting with his family, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He's arguing with scribes. You're like, this is the most chaotic story. Like what is happening here? But it's because the biblical writer is trying to, to get you to question, who is Jesus? What is his identity? What are people saying about him, and what do you think? What, what, what are you formulating about who the person of Jesus is? And so here's what's happening. Jesus is again drawing, drawing crowds. People are huddling around him so closely. Things are getting so busy in Jesus' life. Uh, the, the text literally says he didn't even have time to eat. It's so fascinating that he didn't even have time to eat. And then his family is looking around him. Later we learn it's his mother and his brothers, and they want to have an intervention with Jesus. Verse, uh, verse 21 says, they went out to seize him, like seize, to, to take hold or to bind. Like I actually literally got a picture in my mind of like a straitjacket. Like they're trying to take him and arrest him. And then it says, for they were saying, this is his family. He is out of his mind. So to his family, his family's like, He's gone mental. Like Jesus has gone mad. He doesn't have a job. He's not eating. He's telling people he's God. And he, I think he's actually starting to believe his own hype about who he is. Jesus is starting to say, I'm, I am who I say that I am. And so rightfully so, his family's worried about him. Um, and um, <laughs> I don't know about you, like anybody in the room have an embarrassing sibling? And you're like, I, I got I to gotta keep away from them, right? Like uh, we were joking this morning about... Um, like when siblings post crazy stuff on social media. And um, it was Austin. Austin's like, I just don't accept their friend requests. I'm like, that's brilliant. Like, just don't even be friends with them. You don't even have to deal with it, right? And so this is, this is Jesus. He's like pushed even out of, his, out of his family. And it got me thinking to sort of pause and reflect on this. I wonder if this pained Jesus. Like, like family rejection is painful. And Jesus knows the, the pain and the grief of fractured familial relationships, to be misunderstood by your family. Like, that's isolating, right? Pushed to the edges, misunderstood. And in one sense, if that's you, it's like, that's, that's a real comfort to this passage, right? Jesus knows family dysfunction. But it gets worse for Jesus uh, if you go to verse 22 here. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now, um, it's easy to blanketly call the scribes the religious leaders, but they're actually coming down from Jerusalem, likely meaning that they want to come check out what Jesus is doing. And the difference between the Pharisees and the scribes is the, the Pharisees were good with the oral law. And so it would be um, very verbal. But the scribes are actually uh, like a step 
beyond that because they can actually write their scribes, right? And so they come down from Jerusalem, and then this is what they're saying about him. He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So Jesus' family's like, he's mental, he's crazy, he's a lunatic. The scribes are like, he's a demon. Like, he is a demon, he's the devil from hell. Like, that's what he's possessed with. So, there's the bread of the sandwich, right? Like, that's the top layer of the sandwich that, that we just got. It's like, what is going on? And what the author's doing is prodding us. Who's Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Is Jesus this crazy person? Is Jesus a devil from hell? Like, who, who do you think Jesus is? And one of the things I found so brilliant um, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark's gospel opens, and it says this. This is how we read it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What did Mark tell us from the very beginning? He says, this is who Jesus is. He already told us. But what's crazy about reading it, it's all about point of views. The reader understands this book is about Jesus, the Son of God. This, is, this book is about Jesus being divine. But everyone else in the story doesn't know yet. It's still unfolding for them. And so they're still questioning. And it allows us to uh, a different point of view. We get a vantage point where we get to look in where people in the text don't quite understand. And maybe what that would ask us to do is, what if these people are right? Like, Jesus is acting a little bit crazy. What if Jesus actually is, like, this demon from hell who's casting out other demons? Like, it's starting to prod at us. And of course, we're like, no, I'm not going to do that. But how do you and I misinterpret Jesus? How do you and I look at Jesus and think, you know, I kind of want to make him this. Like, I want to kind of interpret him in my own ways. I think the temptation for us to do this is, um, is to look at what Jesus did, right? Jesus walked around teaching with authority. Um, scholars say that he had an emphatic e ego about him. Like, he knew who he was, and he walked around telling people who he was. And that gets you killed, right? Like, saying you're God in the flesh, that pushes you to the fringes of society. And we do the same thing with Jesus, actually. It's, it's actually a, a very common temptation to look at Jesus and say, Jesus is a good teacher who informs my intellect, right? Jesus has wise, wise things to say. If I listen to his teaching, I'll probably have a good moral life. He's a great teacher of love. Like, who doesn't want to support a good teacher of love? If, if, if someone were to come to you and say, I just don't really like Jesus that much, you're like, whoa, easy. Like, you don't do that, right? You don't, call, you don't say you don't like Jesus, right? Um, I was thinking of, um, we have some life coaches in our community, and I was thinking how often we approach Jesus sort of like a life coach. And, um, you know, they're there to walk alongside us, give us some advice, um, invest in our lives. But the, at the end of the day, we, we take or leave their advice, right? We take it or we leave it. We, we say, thank you so much. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that into my life or I'm not going to put that into my life. And I think a lot of times the temptation is to treat Jesus the same way, is that we take the information and we say, well, you know, that's, that's probably a decent idea. Right? Uh, Katie was talking about generosity. Like, oh, give your money away. Like, oh, that's like a good idea. I'll do a little bit. Right? Like, we're just taking a little bit of Jesus' advice. Or some of us, we, we obviously wouldn't verbalize this, but we would say, you know, Jesus, to me, is just sort of benign. He's, he's just there. Like, the spiritual life, if I'm honest, it's a little slow for me. It's a little boring, you know? You know what's better? Money. You know what's better? Work. You know what's better? Sex. Vacation. Right? It's, like, easier to say, like, these are the things that are better than this like spiritual life. And the truth is, is, is that many of us are just really half-hearted, right? Let's just be honest, right? We're half-hearted about the spiritual life, whether that be because of fear or 
uh, a level of contentment that we're actually finding outside of our spiritual journeys. But to us, some of us, it's like, you know, Jesus is sort of benign to me. Or maybe you would come in here and you would say, you know what, I just don't know. I just don't know. I don't know what I think. I, I just have this doubt that that lingers. And if you're really engaged, if you're really reading the scriptures, what you find is that you, at, at the very minimum, your curiosity is piqued. You're like, that's fascinating. That's interesting. What if? And I think that's actually a step in our faith journey, is just that little, like, step, right? Even, even doubt. I, I always love the idea that, um, I always talk about how doubt is um, faith-seeking understanding. Doubt is faith-seeking understanding. It's actually a part of our faith journey. Doubt, it's a step in the right direction. And that's, that's what's driving us here. Who is Jesus? And of course, I'll get there, but the text actually presents us with an answer to the question. But before it does that, it presents to us what's called a trilemma. All right? It's on, it's on your sheet there, a trilemma. I'm not just being fancy. This is like, we'll get there. All right? Um, you've, you've had a dilemma in your life, but have you had a trilemma? All right? It's obvious, right? A, a three equal solutions to a complex problem. Uh, my lunch trilemma is, do I go to Chipotle, Stickies, or Chopped? Right? Uh, Chipotle, standard, solid, consistent, decent price range, healthy if I want it to be. Like, that's a great go-to. Do I go to Stickies? Who's with me? The, the Stickies ch- chicken fingers? Me and Elizabeth, we, we know. We know Stickies, all right? Delicious chicken fingers, not healthy, but the Cajun salt and the sauces is perfect. And then chopped is my go-to salad. Pretty good, healthy, but then I'm hungry at 4 p.m. This is my lunch trilemma that's presented before me, all right? Chipotle Stickies are chopped. Uh, the college trilemma, do I get good grades, do I have a social life, or do I get enough sleep, all right? I'm all about the sleep, I go in that direction, but here's the trilemma that is put before us. Jesus is either, he's a lunatic, that's what his family's saying, he's off his rocker, he is a liar, right, he's the devil from hell, or he's Lord. Like, he is who he says he is, and he should be prioritized and worshipped. And this is from C.S. Lewis, here's what he said. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. This is what Mark is pushing us to. Mark is pushing us to say, who who is Jesus? Like really early on in his gospel, he's, He's saying, make a decision. Make a decision about who he is because his family thought he was crazy. The scribes think that he's a devil from hell, but who do you think he is? And it pops open that temptation for us to continue to go back to Jesus and say, teach me things, Jesus. Teach me good ethics. Give me, give me a ticket to heaven and some advice here on earth, but that's not it. Like that, that's, that's not what Jesus came to do. That's, that's not what he claimed to do. And if we reduce him to uh, simply to a teacher or to benign or to a ticket to heaven... Um, we actually miss Jesus completely, and we miss what he came to do. And so, with the rest of our time, what did Jesus come to do? Who, what did Jesus say about himself? And I want to kind of paint some broader strokes here. I don't want to like come like really define. 
at this because um, that's not what the text does, one. But I think this may help, uh, help us think about in this season of life of our community uh, what we want to do and how we want to do it. And so um, Jesus re- reveals his identities in these three ways here. He exposes himself as a forgiver. He shows that he's a liberator. That's where we'll spend most of our time. And then we'll wrap quickly talking about how Jesus is a family maker. All right, so here's Jesus' logic to the, the scribes. He says, and he called them to them. This is verse 23. And he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And so we're, we're, we're getting really basic logic here, right? If a country goes to war with itself, the country loses, right? Um, if a house, uh, if a family, excuse me, fights and that family, somebody in the family wins, the whole family loses, right? It's just this facts. I'm a child of divorced parents. My house was divided. My house fell, right? I, I understand this, this logic. And so Jesus comes to the, to the scribes who say, um, Jesus is Satan, the, the deceiver, the liar, um, the very opposite of that which is good and holy. And he says, that, you, your logic doesn't even make any sense. Like, I, that, that, that's, not even, that's not even good logic that I would be a demon. Why would I be casting out other demons? And so what Jesus is doing here is he's taking his, their logic and he's short-circuiting it, right? They have this sort of self-serving ideology and he's saying, no, 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 you're, you're missing what I'm actually coming to do. But then you get to verse 27. This is really important. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is, um, Jesus is brilliant. This is like a parable in you know, one sentence that he's giving a story. And essentially what he's saying is this, is I've invaded the strong man's house. I'm, the, I'm stronger than the strong man. I've broken down the door. I've tied him up. And when I came in the flesh, I put evil to the side, right? I'm thinking about the temptation in the desert that's in chapter one or chapter two, right? He says, I conquered. And then we know, we know the rest of the story, but what about the cross, right? The cross. I put death and sin under my feet. I put it to an end. And so this is this first part. Here's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to forgive. And I want us to think personally, right? Um, in church these days, you're always hearing about, um, you know, it's not just about you. You know, you think, think outside of yourself, but think about yourself for a second, right? Jesus came to forgive you personally. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to forgive. This is is a massive part of what this passage is about. Um, We get stuck on the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit in verse 28, but look how it begins. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. Like, just rest in that for a second. Like, that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to forgive you in that way. And, and I, I, you know, I was thinking this week, like, how I remember experiencing that for the first time. Like, thinking back when I'm, like, 13, like, this angsty teenager, and just, from, like, realizing, like, wow, God, God sent his son, and Jesus died for me. Like, it, maybe it sounds too simple for some of us, or, you know, we've, like, graduated from this idea that God is a forgiver, but we could just rest in that, right? He, Jesus bound the strong man, defeated sin and death. And when we go, in, in a few minutes, when we take communion together, we reflect. We reflect on what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus um, died with us, right, as a means of identification. 
He died instead of us, right? A, a means of substitution. He died for us so that we could be incorporated into the life of God. And so um, we rest in that, right? We believe that about ourselves and we say, I believe, God, that you've, you've done that, that you sent your son and I have forgiveness in my life and I can walk in that level of forgiveness. I don't have to walk in shame and guilt anymore but because I'm accepted. But intuitively, we know that life is more than about us, right? And so we take that and I, we, don't, we don't move on from that. We accept that. But we know that Jesus is more than a guilt remover. And so if you read the, the Bible, if you were to sit down, if you could, and read the Bible cover to cover, you would find that this God wants to identify over and over and over again with the powerless and the marginalized. Like the, the Old Testament central story is about liberation of slaves from captivity, right? That's the central story. And how does God do this throughout the Bible? He does it through, um, he does it through the social and flawed outsider. Over and over and over again, he does it on the fringes and in the margins. People that in the world's eyes would be seen as weak and rejected. And what, what's happening in this passage when Jesus says, no one enters a strong man's house and plunders his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. We, we see it. And it's, it's a temptation to just take it personally and say, look what God did for me. And that's true. But what's even more important is to think about the themes that are being drawn on in the Old Testament, uh, specifically in the book of Isaiah. Um, in the book of Isaiah, if you have your phone, you, you could bookmark this chapter. It's really, um, the whole thing is quite fascinating. It'd be long to read. But in the book of Isaiah, um, kingdoms are rising and falling. Um, God's chosen people, Israel, is... Um, they're basically saying, God, I'll follow you, and then they disobey. So it's obey, disobey, obey, disobey, and they're on this journey of uh, disobeying and, and obeying God. And in this passage, they're actually oppressed by another kingdom, and God makes them a promise that he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And this is what it says in Isaiah 49, verse 24. And hopefully you'll see the parallel themes here that, that um, Jesus is drawing on. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued. For thus says the Lord, even the captive mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. It's insane. I will make your oppressor eat their own flesh. It's like, I'm not messing around here. Or in this passage, like, I'm, not, I'm not messing around. I'm coming to bind the strong man. I'm coming to put systems under my feet. I'm here to put oppressors and enemies under my feet. And so Jesus came to liberate. And I don't want to miss this. I don't want to miss that um, Jesus wants to do something bigger, right? Like, I don't want to miss that even in our day that, that, that God can actually still do things like this. When I look in the book of Mark... Um, Jesus is very, teaching very little. And um, in chapter 1, he exercises demons, he heals lepers, he heals Simon's mother-in-law from a fever, um, he casts out uh, more demons at the end of chapter 1. In chapter 2, he heals the paralytics. In chapter 3, he heals the man with the, the withered hand. And Jesus is coming and like, he's actually working like in the world, right? He's actually fixing people's problems in the present. Uh, even I was thinking about Easter's coming up, and I was kind of looking through the passages, thinking about and brainstorming for Easter. 
um, Jesus comes in his triumphal entry, and you know, large portions of the Gospels are actually the last weeks, of the last week of Jesus's life. It's like, Jesus, what did you come for? People say, well, Jesus came to die, right? And it's like, why, do, why don't we just get him to the cross then in the Gospels? But we spend six, seven, eight, nine chapters talking about what he did during that week. And I just made a list. He confronted corruption and hypocrisy. He overturned tables. He healed the blind and the sick. He hosted meals with friends. He washed people's feet. And what does this mean? It means that the kingdom of God is about life on earth as much as it is eternity in heaven. And I don't want to oversell this here, but one of the things that I've been thinking about um, is our value as a community to, to think about justice and mercy and to, to serve and to love and to give back in, in ways to do that. And um, in one sense, I'm proud of you know, how even the inception of our community, we've thought about um, coming into the city, listening, being patient, trying to figure out what the needs are, not try to conquer, but listen and partner with. And I'm, I'm excited about some of the ways that we're thinking. And I, I know we have so much learning to do in these areas, but when I look at this, I'm like, no, this is it. Like, this is what Jesus came to do, like, in, in, in human form, liberation, right? To think about the, our city, the weight of systemic racism, injustices in housing and healthcare and incarceration. Um, Katie mentioned a little bit of it, but our partnership um, with the Youth Justice Network, um, with our friend Carmelita, and just to be a part of um, sitting over meals and dinner with formerly incarcerated youth is like going to school again to listen to stories, to hear what's taking place. Um, Friday morning, Katie and I had a call with Carmelita, and um, I'm just going to be honest with you, it was very overwhelming. Like, the need she was presenting us with, the work that she's doing, she's actually working now with families of formerly incarcerated youth. Um, she connects them with um, resources that they may need. And I'm going to be really honest with you, like, I'm private messaging Katie on the side, and I'm like, don't overcommit to things. Like, I want to make sure that we, you know, can meet the needs that we're seeing in front of us. Like, this is overwhelming. And it was a lot. It was um, families needing practical things like childcare and housing es uh, um, essentials, um, mental health counseling, job accessibility, um, housing, legal, legal help. And I'm going to be honest, like, it was, it was a wait. It was a, a wait. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how we can participate in this. And I'm, I'm not actually saying I know how yet either. But I, and I'm, I'm thankful for Katie that she was just like, all right, let's, let's talk. Let's, she goes, I'm a doer. You know, like, let's, let's, let's work on this together. And I think what, what this means is uh, this is giving us a vision for that. Like following Jesus through the book of Mark is giving us a vision for how to do this level of liberation, let's call it. Right? That's kind of a, a, a shock word in some ways. But how are we um, bringing about the kingdom of God in our community in simple and small ways? but also willing to say, I'm going to be sacrificial in this way, and we're going to put on this, this um, um, job fair, whatever she, she may need us to do. And so I, I, I guess what I would say here to wrap up this point is that let's pray towards that end. Like even as I pray at the end, let's be praying for those, um, those needs in our city that we could be a part of them in ways that, uh, that we love and we care for and, and is genuine. But then this passage isn't over, right? There's, there's more going on. Jesus is doing a lot. And of course, if you've, uh, you've ever heard this verse, it's, it's only ever ripped out of context. context verse uh, 28 and 29, it says this. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemes they utter, 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now we're pretty funny as people, right? Like 30, we invite 30 people to our birthday, and that one person doesn't show up, and we hone in on that, right? And that's what happens in this passage. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. We're like, okay, great. But this one, oh, and we focus on the one, right? Like that's the one that we zoom in on. But we have to read this passage in its context, right? When you don't understand a passage, zoom out, read more. And he says in this context that the sin or the possible sin of the scribes, the people that just accused Jesus of being demonic, he's speaking to them here. He says, in the very presence of God's grace and action, the things that I'm doing, you're, you're saying are demonic. If you look at acts of forgiveness and liberation, acts of grace and healing, and you label that demonic, that's it right there. If you look at, at what the Holy Spirit is doing, you say, that's of the devil, that's it, right? There's no going back. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever, like, if you ever wondered, like, have I done that? Have I, like, blasphemed the Holy Spirit? You probably haven't. You probably haven't if you're asking the question. Like, it's, it's right there. It's, if you look at, at that which is of God, of the Holy Spirit, um, and you say it's not, then, then that's it. But even further here, the scribes are like, no, that wasn't right. No, the act of beauty and remaking and healing and forgiving isn't it. And so this is still under that subsection of Jesus being a liberator. Uh, one, one commentator I was reading this week said, the blasphemy resulting from bad apologetics will always be pardonable. What is not pardonable is using, hear this well, what is not pardonable is using theology to turn real human liberation into something odious. The real sin against the Holy Spirit is refusing to recognize with joy some concrete liberation is taking place before one's own eyes. <laughs> to me, the most evil thing that you could do to someone is use God against them. And that's what this is uncovering and, and, and showing in a real way, that acts of liberation are happening and we can't quite wrap our mind around it. All right. The text doesn't end there for some reason. I don't know why, but it keeps going. Here we go, 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And so just get this mental picture. Jesus' family outside. Jesus inside with the crowd. And they say to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and who are my brothers? And looking to those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so what this gives us glimmers of is the church. It's giving us a glimmer of the, the church as a family, the, the church as a community of people. And for whatever reason, family is the primary metaphor that the Bible uses for the church, right? God is our father, Jesus is our husband, the spirit is our counselor, and let's just be honest, we come from a lot of dysfunction, right? We all come from a dysfunctional family, and guess what we do? We bring all of our dysfunction, and what do we do? We go to community group on Tuesday night, right? That's what we do with all of our function, I mean all of our families. But the crazy thing also is that we didn't choose our families, right? We actually have some level of say in the communities that we're a part of, but I think what I love about the church even, even so in this is that um, God invites us to come together from all different walks of life, and he, he invites us to stay together. 
right? To not hit the eject button when things get hard or irritating or boring, but to say, like, I'm in it and I'm better off because I'm in it. And so the church should be, the church should be messy like it is. And in some ways, if you look at it this way, right? It should be multi-ethnic. It should be multicultural. It should be, um, we should be getting lots of different perspectives. We should be sitting across the table from people who are wrestling with doubts and understanding, who are coming from different denominational backgrounds and who bring their own baggage and there's just joy in all of it. Because what are you doing when you join a church? You're bringing your imperfect self and you're inviting other people's imperfect self into community. Uh, there's, a, there's a comedian, um, I, I can't remember his name, it's Groucho something. He famously said that he would never be a part of a club that would have him as a member. And I think that's actually the, a great posture to have when we come into community and say, I'm not worthy to be like a part of this because I got my own mess going on but I'm coming and bringing this and I'm celebrating the differences. And that's what Jesus is welcoming us into. Jesus is saying, I'm starting a new family, one where forgiveness is key, where works and acts of justice and mercy are key, and we put these together, centered around the person of Jesus, and we walk alongside each other. And so that's the vision. And one of the things that I did this week when I was reading this passage of Scripture, I was like, these are announcements. Like that's exa- these are now that's that's exactly what we're talking about is to get into a community group, to be a part of the family, to figure out if this is a place you want to call home, um, Tuesday and Wednesday nights, and then um, to be a part of exploring um, deeds of justice and mercy. Um, the Father's Heart is a great way of exposure. Um, their hunger prevention program has been absolutely um, life-giving. I, I feel like I go there and I learn and grow and have conversation and am stretched, um, and it's a way of giving back. I think Katie already mentioned, but uh, the last time I was there, they served only over 950 people that morning food, and so the, the need is there, and so I want to create a, a, a consistent presence um, to meet tangible needs there. And then the future partnership and learnings comes with walking alongside the Youth Justice Network. Um, and we have a lot of learning to do from Carmelita and her team. It's not easy work working with formerly incarcerated uh, youth. It's so easy to say, what's the need? How do I meet it really quick? Rather than how do we get around the table? How are we learning from these individuals? How can we walk alongside them, bring about relationship? But as we read this passage, this is exactly what it's about, that Jesus is forging a new family. He's doing a new work, and he invites us into that. And so, um, a way of participation today is through communion. And so, if, uh, if you'd like, you can grab uh, that um, cup, the elements there. And if you believe in, in what we're talking about today, this, this person of Jesus, you're welcome to partake of the elements. If, if you're like questioning or doubting or you're not ready or, you know, you're like, I don't even know what that means yet, don't, no worries. You can, you can hold on to that and you can use this time to think about your spiritual journey so far. But this is a meal where we're reminded of the sacrifice, the, the, the flesh and the, the blood of Jesus that we're reminded of what God has done for us. And so if you want to peel that back there, um, and I'll pray, and then we'll take, partake this together. Let's pray. And so, Father, I, I pray that uh, the things that we read about wouldn't just be for then but God, that you would be um, at work in our midst, that you would be healing, that you'd be giving hope, that you would be helping formerly incarcerated youth integrate back into the city, that um, mouths would be fed by our work, um, and not for our good or uh, so people know about us, God, but that 
um, so that the need is met and people know that there's hope in your son Jesus. I pray, God, as we think about um, ways to do this, that it wouldn't be us trying to conquer or um, to come and to say that we have a bunch of things figured out, but that in humility we would come and we would learn um, about who you are. And um, Father, as we take these elements, may we be reminded that we are in desperate need of your grace. And we love you. And